Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a guest that is going to teach us a lot about artificial intelligence, about big data, about M&A, capital raising, cold emailing investors, I guess uh, you name it. So I guess uh, without further ado, Tim Huang from Fiscal Note, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. So originally born and raised, born in Michigan, but raised in Washington, D.C. How was, uh, why, why that switch? <laughs> no, my, my parents actually immigrated here from South Korea uh, when I was much, much younger. Um, and, uh, you know, I think they found that there was opportunities uh, in America. So my, my father actually ended up working for uh, the United States government. He worked for NIH and NIST uh, as a biophysicist. And so... You know, where do you go? You go to Washington to be at the center of, of government. Yeah, yeah. So you were you were basically raised there, school in suburban Maryland, which is beautiful to to raise families. Um, and you actually that that actually opened the doors for you to get involved in politics very early on. Uh, and and there was a lot of action starting at 16 years old. So what happened? <laughs> well, so the thing is, if you work uh, in Washington D.C., uh, the thing that everyone talks about, the thing that everyone breathes. Is politics. Um, you live and breathe politics all day because uh, so many of your friends, your friends' parents, everyone you know works for a federal agency, for a law firm, for a trade association, whatever the case is. And so, I, you know, I was sucked into that world very, very early on. So I, I started working on political campaigns, uh, you know, working on different, uh, you know, candidates and the like. And you know, when I was sixteen, a friend of mine called me up and he said, "Hey, you know, you should probably." Look at this guy who's running for president. It's a kind of a funny name, and uh, you know, not a lot of people know about him. But I think I think this guy has a shot. Um, that guy turned out to be Barack Obama, and so uh, ended up joining his campaign uh, late '07, um, and helping to build out uh, some key communities uh, around the country. Uh, and then, lo and behold, he actually ended up winning, um, which was uh, a truly an interesting experience to sort of be along for the ride. And, and we used to call it actually. Um, the largest and the fastest growing startup in American history, going from you know just a handful of folks to a billion in, in contributions in all fifty states, um, you know, and trying to set up a government in that, that same time period. Uh, and then you know I decided that I was going to go into politi politics myself. So when I was seventeen, and uh, I ended up running for the board of education representing Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, and to be honest, much to my surprise, people actually voted for me. <laughs> Um, and, and, and just, Tim, before we get into that, what did you learn from, from working with Barack Obama? What made him such a great leader? You know, I think the way that the president ran the campaign, um, you know, a lot of people got um, inspired, not just in terms of the policy messaging and, and, and whatnot, but um, even just the nuts and bolts of the operations, um, about decentralized operations, trusting your people, being very data-driven being very methodical, being very values-driven. Um, those are the sort of winning elements of building a great company and building a great organization. And to this day, to be honest, they're, they're concepts that I think through even as we build our own company. And and so I guess, you know, one, one thing that I saw, you know, at that point, 
you know, social media was kind of like starting and, and I remember Obama getting involved with Facebook and things like that. I mean, how much do you think that being able to really capitalize on new innovations and, and such incredible strategies like that, you know, was a, f- a factor behind such an incredible growth? Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you think about uh, this intersection between politics and technology, uh, we're really only beginning to see the, the starting stages of that. Um, and, you know, when it comes to political campaigns, they're obviously, you know, the highest stakes issues, but even in just terms of governance um, and the way in which that, you know, citizens interact with um, public institutions, um, the way in which we think about transparency and, and access to information, um, just the, the, the sheer connectiveness between our governments um, and our people um, is is radically changing, not just in the U.S. but around the world. And so, um, you know, that that was obviously one of the, the many inspirations that we have for starting Fiscal Note. But uh, to be honest, um, that intersection of politics and technology is is a very very uh, inspiring and, and hot field for us. Yeah, no, and we'll talk about Fiscal Note in in a little bit. So, so at seventeen, you ran for public office. Uh, what was going through your head, Tim? <laughs> Look, I, I think at at seventeen, uh, you know. First of all, you're thinking a lot of, about a lot of things, right? You're thinking about taking the SATs, about where to go to college, and <laughs> but for me, I think you know I was just so inspired, and I, I wanted to make a difference so early. And so, from a political perspective, um, you know, running for office is probably the best thing that you can do. And um, there's you know there's a seat that opened up, um, local government, and that's uh, you know basically the, the the first step to to being involved in politics is just showing up. Um, so I put my name in. Uh, campaigned, uh, you know, got elected, uh, you know, managed about a two and a half billion dollar operating budget, four billion dollar capital budget, um, and served roughly twenty two thousand teachers and eleven thousand administrators. Um, and it was a great experience. I mean, it gives you on the ground experience of what it's like to be a politician, what it's like to manage budgets, to uh, you know, think about tax revenues and your interactions with state, local, and federal government agencies, and and all the different machinations of governing. Uh, an actual agency or, or government institution. So what it's like to be a politician? Yeah, not just to be a politician, but actually be somebody who thinks very heavily about policy and, you know, its interactions with the public. And a lot of what, what I did was trying to actually revamp our communications architecture of how at least our agency and institution thought about interactions um, with the public, largely because, to be honest, education is probably the most uh, uh, visceral experience that a lot of people have uh, with government institutions, right? The schools that we send our kids to, um, the curriculum that they learn, and the like. And so, um, you know, I mean, all the way down to the, the the property taxes and the interactions that we have there. I mean, we, you know, fundamentally thought about um, all these different issues for for the public. Mm. And I mean, we're, how many people that you have under you? I mean, seventeen years old, the four billion in capital, you know, management there. I mean, were you getting vertigo? I mean, how many people did you have there working with you? <laughs> so we, I think we had about, um, I would say about 22,000 uh, teachers and about 11,000 administrators. Um, and so uh, uh, I remember very early on in my, my tenure, um, you know, we would just go from school to school. We had about 200 schools in our district, um, just trying to meet as many parents and as many teachers and administrators and students as possible. Our, our district represented roughly just over a million, about 1.1 million people. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was definitely a great learning experience for me about just how to be a leader in the community. Got it, got it. And I mean, wow, 17 years old, you were probably signing autographs in, in your high school class. So um, so why, why do you say goodbye to all of this and you get this love for computer science and go to Princeton? Well, I think that... Um, for me, I've always thought about impact and how in our very short lives, we can make the maximum impact, uh, you know, in terms of the work that we do and, and the lives that we change uh, in the world. And that's one of the reasons why I got into politics. Um, politics is one of those areas where, um, you know, for one unit of time, um, the impact that you have on people is almost everlasting, uh, you know, in Healthcare, education, 
uh, foreign policy, you know, whatever the case is, these are areas where every day you're making a difference. Um, and I saw very similar elements of that in technology. In technology, the, the, the trade-off is that actually it's, it's, the pace is much faster. Um, you know, whereas, you know, we would work in Congress to try and pass, uh, you know, one piece of legislation and it might take years or a decade or, or whatnot. Um, you know, in technology, I saw that, you know, people were building applications. Um, they were building uh, software tools that were getting rolled out in months. Um, and we're immediately making impacts on the lives of millions of people. And I felt like that was where I wanted to be. And I, I, I originally actually went to Princeton with the understanding that I wanted to sit at this intersection of, of policy and, and technology. Um, and so I, I studied at the Woodrow Wilson School, specifically the focus on technology policy and computer science. And my initial thought that I was, was that I was going to go uh, you know, back to government, work for the State Department or you know, the FCC or something. Uh, but increasingly, I felt like, hey, what if I flipped this and took my policy and politics background and went into the technology world? Um, and and that was the major switch for me, sort of switching into the technology field. So what happened next? Well, so I, you know, at the time I was graduating from Princeton and, and uh, you know, had gotten accepted to Harvard Business School. And I was, I was very seriously considering going. I actually showed up for a couple of days, but... <laughs> I decided that uh, uh, I want to start a company, and there's never better chance to start a company, um, uh, you know, than when you're straight out of college and you got nothing else to lose. And so, uh, you know, moved out to Silicon Valley, um, grabbed uh, two of my buddies from school, uh, you know, bootstrapped a couple thousand dollars from summer savings. We were actually living out of a Motel Six uh, because we couldn't afford an apartment in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. um, and so. Um, you know, you can imagine this, this experience where, uh, you know, uh, we had these two, uh, two beds, um, up until our fifth employee, you had two guys sleeping on each bed and one guy sleeping on the floor. Um, and that was our first office. <laughs> and why did you guys move there? Why did you guys move uh, from the East coast to the West coast? Well, I mean, to be honest, when you're, when you're young and you want to start a company, I mean, you know, you just go to Silicon Valley, right? I mean, that's sort of, uh, where dreams are made of in the technology world. I mean, honestly, I didn't, I didn't think. Uh, we we didn't know what we were doing, <laughs> um, but but we wanted to start this company and this this idea that we had been we had been mulling around for a little bit, and so you know made our way out to the valley, and and you know that's that's kind of where we got started. So what was that idea that you guys were incubating? What was that process? So you know when I was working in government, um, you know in policy, one of the biggest issues that we had was uh, that if you worked in government, a lot of the time that you spent was actually trying to understand what other people in government were doing. Um, so if the president uh, you know, wanted to change the minimum wage law, you would have this team of economists and analysts and, and lawyers sitting in a room somewhere trying to look up what the laws were around the country. Um, or when you're sitting in education policy, education is one of those things that's heavily regulated at federal, state, local levels. So everyone has an opinion on how their child needs to get educated. Um, and uh, you know, the, the challenges of just cutting through all that regulation um, were so immense that you just have to have teams and teams of people to do it. So I, I was thinking to myself, look, if the government doesn't know what the government is doing, then how, how does the private sector understand what the government is doing? You know, if you're sitting in an insurance company or a bank or a health insurance company or an energy organization, how are you supposed to understand the implications of government on your institutions? And um, we decided that we wanted to build initially a search engine um, in the ability to search um, all of America's laws, um, legislation, regulations on one singular digitized platform and we get a sense for how laws are changing. Um, and that's what we built. I mean, we, we literally you know, sat in a room and a Motel 6 room. Uh, we were coding up this, this system to ingest um, legislation, regulations from all 50 state governments from Congress. And then make that searchable and accessible to, uh, you know, our constituents and customers who'd be interested in this information. Got it. So it was five of, of you. You installed the extra beds in there, uh, <laughs> and 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 I guess the founding team. It was uh, three of you guys, right? So what what kind of backgrounds did you guys have? So two of us, uh, you know, were a little more technical. Um, you know, I I you know been studying computer science since high, since high school actually. Um, 
you know, another one of my co-founders um, had majored in computer science, was actually on his way to, to a software engineering job at, at Booz Allen. Um, and then the third co-founder had more of a financial sort of operations background. Uh, and he was actually on his way to, to working at um, an accounting firm at EY. Um, I remember my, my uh, co-founder asking him and saying, hey, man, you know, this idea, let's, let's go pursue it. He actually quit his, his job, I want to say, three days before he was supposed to start. <laughs> um, and uh, when we moved out to the Valley, uh, but that, that was basically it. I mean, you know, we, we basically had, you know, three guys who, who kind of had this idea and, and went out to the Valley to start the company. So for how long did you guys stay at the Motel 6? <laughs> we were there, uh, I want to say for a good uh, five or six months, a little bit, a little bit less than half a year or so. <laughs> Didn't they see that you guys were working? There, like in the room. I mean, I'm not sure if there is any regulations against that. <laughs> well, that's the ironic thing. I mean, we, we moved around a little bit. Uh, we went to an extended <laughs> stay for a little while and whatnot. But I mean, yeah. getting a month-to-month apartment in um, in in the Bay Area is uh, near impossible. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. So then, what were some of the early days like of uh, fiscal note? Oh man, I mean, we were working crazy hours i i, I want to say that you know we we would get up um eight nine in the morning uh we we code we'd call customers pitch investors you know create marketing products um you know we'd work until maybe like one or two in the morning every day seven days a week uh, and we were we were we were really grinding it out um and uh you know i think in a lot of consumer stories you know people say oh you know we had this great idea and it just took off and i i can't say it was the same for us I and mean, we really uh, I mean, as a B2B enterprise software company, you know, meticulously built product, talked to customers, um, got feedback, just kept iterating over and over and over again. At the same time, I mean, I think we were paying ourselves something like $500 a month, uh, you know, scraping, scraping together food and whatnot. Um, and uh, and it, was, it, was, it was definitely a real grind, I mean, for, for us to get this company off the ground. So then what was an event that, uh, I guess, you know, helped you guys to, to get out of the out of the Motel 6 and, and stopped eating ramen? <laughs> well, we, we started signing some customers, um, some beta folks that started bringing on board. We brought on board. Um, you know, I started pitching investors about this grand idea for the ability to search all of the world's laws on a digital platform. And you know, one investor that I reached out to through a cold email, actually, uh, was Mark Cuban. So I went on Google, um, you know, searched up Mark Cuban email, quite literally, shot him an email and said, Hey, Mark, and I'm working on this idea. I feel like it could really change the way that, um, you know, the, the world understands our laws and regulations he responded within 45 minutes. Um, and they said, you know, uh, asked a bunch of questions. And then very soon afterwards, he said, look, I'll, I'll lead your entire deal. Um, your seed round. Uh, so Mark wrote the first $740,000 check into the company. And how long did it take for that, uh, Tim? How many, was there like a, just via email or via phone calls and meetings in person? Or what did it take to get that 740000 It was a bunch of emails back and forth. Um, I think it was one phone call with somebody on his staff. And it basically took a couple of days. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, Mark moves quickly and, and I think he knows what he wants. And, and that, that, you know, I, I'm, uh, Mark has been a great partner ever since. So then how did the... Um... Did you guys have any other investors or was it just Mark Cuban or, or walk us through how did that round come together? Yeah. So Mark, Mark was brought on board and then Jerry Yang heard about it and, and he reached out and, and ended up joining the deal. Um, NEA uh, ended up joining that seed round. This is back in, in 2013. Um, and then, so, but, but hold on. So Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo, reached, yes. re, did reach out to you, like literally like, a, like you one day wake up. You have your coffee with whatever you have it, and then you open the inbox, and there is an email, you know, out of the blue from Yeri Yang. <laughs> no, no, we. So, um, I, you know, I'd been out in the valley pitching folks and, and talking to people, and I was at this pitch event, and and um, uh, I remember ha having to leave early or something because um, we at this point we had we had, we already had Mark and we had NEA, um, and my co-founder texts me and he says, "Hey, you know." This guy, uh, Jerry Yang, um, and his staff are really interested in, in talking. It's like, no way. I mean, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and lo and behold, it was actually true. And so Jerry ended up joining that round. I think he was the last investor in that round. Wow. How, mu how much money did you guys raise in that round? We raised about $1.3 um, And I think that was 
about average for what a seed company raised back in 2013. And typically, I don't really recommend to get VCs at a, at a seed stage because normally seed stage, you're still figuring out what the wheel looks like uh, and you want to raise money to really speed up the machine rather than to build the machine. So were you guys concerned to have such a top tier investor like NEA coming in so early? No, I, I don't think we were worried about that. I mean, at, at that level, to be honest, we 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 had a couple of things that we knew. We we knew that the product um, uh, was needed in the market, and we validated that through just grinding. Like, I mean, literally calling hundreds of customers a day. Um, you know, we had validated the price points at which customers would be willing to pay, and we um, at that point, you know, I think had you know maybe half a dozen beta customers, and one that was pretty much on the on the edge of closing at, at about. You know, call it a 20, 30k price point. So we knew that there was a gen- that this was going to be more of a call it a Prius product and not like a Ferrari or um, like a. Uh, we we knew that it's going to be a certain range of of, of a price point, um, and we knew that there was a handful of features and functionality, you know, in terms of workflow and additional data that that we wanted to build. So it was, it was very. I'm sure we could have bootstrapped it a little bit longer. And to be honest, in retrospect, if I were to start another company, I probably would have struck it out a little bit longer. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, we're first time founders and obviously having the partnership of, of some great investors, you know, was, was really helpful there as well. Got it. So, so how much capital have you guys raised today, Tim? Uh, we've raised a lot of capital. Um, so between, uh, you know, venture capital acquisition, financing and, and everything else, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later. Uh, we've raised just over $230 million. Got it. So how would you say that I would say the um, the company, as well as perhaps the expectations from investors, how have those changed from one financing milestone to the next one? Yeah, I mean, so the financing mechanisms, to be honest, haven't changed too much. Um, you know, you still do the pitch, you do the management presentation, um, you know, you go through the diligence, you do the closing. Um, uh, I would say that the complexity has definitely increased. Um, you know, we've acquired a handful of companies. We've launched new product lines. We're in multiple geographies now. Um, you know, in the A and the B rounds, you know, things definitely ratcheted up from a metrics perspective. Um, you know, ARR, you know, uh, sales efficiency, net retention, um, uh, and all the sort of different machinations of, of how you think about a business. Um, I'd say uh, as we've gone to the later stages, the sort of C, D, E, F rounds, um, you know, things uh, are still definitely very growth oriented. But, um, you know, in some senses, to be honest, I think the, uh, the expectation has definitely gone up, but, but the time horizons have also gone up as well. Maybe it's just the investors that we have. But, um, you know, now it's not, it's not just about how do you get to the next milestone from the A to the B round, from the, you know, million dollar to the $5 million ARR range or whatever it is. But now it's, okay, how do you build uh, a $200 million revenue, $500 million revenue, billion dollar revenue business? You know, can this business, kept, can can it get to a billion in market cap, 5 billion in market cap, 10 billion in market cap? You know, what is it going to take for us to get to that stage? Um, and so the time horizons start to elongate and the, and the bets become much larger. Um, and so I'd say, um, the, the the mechanisms for financing um, are are largely the same, actually. You know, on the equity side, um, but then I guess the other thing that's really interesting is that um, you know where you play in the cap structure. You know, all the way from senior debt, you know, mezzanine debt, convertible, uh, preferred equity, common equity. Um, it gets a lot more complicated, um, yeah. and you can start to think about financing. Um, you know, multiple different. Uh, areas of the cap structure. So, you know, for us, we've started raising a lot more debt um, to minimize dilution for existing shareholders. We've thought about creative uses of convertible notes and the like. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot more complexity, not just in terms of the business, but also in terms of the financing of the business moving forward. So what, in this case, you were you were alluding to it before, you know, in terms of metrics and KPIs, what, what was the one KPI that you always monitor closely and why? Well, there, there's probably um, one and a half for, for us as a SaaS company, right? So it's um, net retention and ARR growth. Um, and so, um, and, you know, we, we always think about how fast we're growing our revenues and our customer base and, and how good are we at, at keeping our customers. And, um, 
Now, there's a, a, a ton of other secondary metrics that another a lot of other SaaS or subscription-based founders think about, you know, sales efficiency and um, and, and the like and, and whatnot. Um, but for us, it was, it was the, the guiding North Star was consistently um, how do we grow our business and how are we keeping our customers? Um, and, and I keep hearing uh, here, Tim, that, you know, for SaaS businesses, retention is everything. Uh, and, you know, people may agree or may disagree, but, but what have you learned about retention? Well, a lot of a lot of times, right? You know, you put net retention, um, and you place a lot of accountability over, uh, you know, your account management, your customer success functions, and the like. And you sort of say, look, it's your job to retain the customer. Um, but to be honest, it, you know, net retention goes so much further beyond that one department. Um, it starts all the way with product, goes straight through sales, straight through marketing, um, the handoff between you know sales and, and account management, and then continuous support um, of, of that customer. So it's not just one department that's responsible for you know, the retention of a customer. It is such a cross-functional thing um, and it requires so much attention at every single stage of a corporate process um, that it's a company-wide goal to retain customers. And that's something that I consistently hammer on our staff and our management and just consistently tell them that Look, it's not account management or customer support's job to make sure that we, we keep these customers. You know, we need to all be in this together to actually make sure that that's possible. Got it. And going back to the cap table, because you were talking about the cap table and, and the fundraising process, I've seen that you guys have raised money from, from I mean, you have like different types of profiles, right? Um, one thing that I see here is that you also have onboarded corporates like RenRen, um, so corporate strategic. So what has been or, or what's the difference really behind the corporate strategics versus, let's say, like the typical VC like an NEA? What's the difference? Well, I mean, you know, we have raised, you know, to your point, a lot of capital from different partners. Um, the one thing that I would say about our investors um, is that they are all very long term oriented um, and they're very consistently aligned with our mission. Um, we have a lot of corporates, as you mentioned, RenRen is one. S&P Global is also a major investor. Um, the Economist is also a major shareholder in our business. Um, you know, we have some sovereigns um, like Tomasek. Um, we have, of course, some VCs like NEA and the like, uh, Visionary, Greenvisor. Um, uh, and then a lot of family offices, right? Mark Cuban, Jerry Yang, Steve Case, uh, and, and the like, a lot of multifamily offices um, that, you know, we've been able to partner with have been spectacular partners for us over the years. Um, and you know, one of the things I've been very, very adamant about, uh, our shareholder base is that if you're a shareholder in our company, you have to believe, um, in what we're trying to accomplish, um, in the long-term goals of the business. And one of the goals that we have, for instance, is I would like to build a digital platform that aggregates every law and every regulation, in every country on the planet and make that accessible for our customers. Um, and that's a very long-term goal. Uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, if you don't have understanding shareholders that, that are willing to sort of see that investment through, it uh, becomes very difficult to see that type of mission, uh, you know, come to come to light. So I guess uh, after raising, let's say, the amount that you were saying, like $230 million, and, um, and, and and really now, I guess, you know, having dealt with all these different types of profiles and, and so forth, what are the three biggest traits that you've seen on? On the best investors, I guess it depends on the different stages. Um, you know, I think, uh, but on a consistent basis, um, uh, you know, at least in the venture world, uh, the best investors, uh, specifically in the early stages, are great coaches. Um, there's something about them that they just really, really love seeing great founders succeed. You know, they just, they just they just so want them to succeed, you know, because uh, they just see a great idea, a great opportunity, and they just want to go after it. And you can viscerally feel that level of excitement. Um, and, you know, some of our investors, I've literally called them our fourth co-founder uh, because they're just, you know, they're just there, you know, they're, they're there to help you, they're help there to help you succeed. Um, I think the second thing is, you know, to a certain extent, they have some level of experience um, on different things that that you might be interested in, and this was very helpful as a first time founder um, to you know to ask an investor around 
you know, this marketing strategy or this legal issue or this product design uh, approach or this M&A strategy um, or whatever it is, and then validate that consistently, you know, from uh, a big think tank, right, um, of people who are vested in the interest of, of this organization succeeding. Um, and the last thing I think is, um, you know, the best investors really, you know, are fully aligned with management teams in terms of the outcomes that they want to see. Um, so, you know, they're not there to see, you know, uh, cash on cash return in, you know, six months or, or less or whatever, right? Um, that, uh, you know, maybe if, if, look, if that's what management wants to do, then that's great. That's, that's great if you have those investors. But the consistent level of alignment and realignment between management and investors um, is something that I think a lot of people underestimate. And that's where the biggest issues arise, you know, where if, if you see unnatural patterns from investors who, who need to do something for their LPs or whatnot, um, that doesn't align with management expectations. And so I think even when, when we validate our conversations with investors, I, I tell them very upfront about what our goals are, what we're trying to accomplish. And look, if, you, if you're not aligned with that, then that's totally fine. Let's move on and find some other way to partner maybe in the future or something. Got it. And you seem to be a pro of cold emails. So for the people that are listening, you know, that they're not able to get a warm intro to an investor, what does a powerful cold email look like? <laughs> um, I think that with any cold approach or cold email, um, you always want to add value to people. Um, and uh, and I, I get cold emails all day now. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> Dozens and dozens of cold emails. And, and <laughs> to be honest, none, none of them actually add any value, right? You're always trying to get something from them. Yep. Um, but uh, the best, best cold emails um, that I've sent as well are, are, you know, revolve around me trying to add value to someone else. Um, and you know, I'm a big believer in just paying it forward and, and you know, consistently helping people out. And, uh, you know, even if it doesn't mean any immediate value and, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, that relationship will turn into something. But um, it doesn't necessarily have to be something you need to get out immediately. And that's something, you know, just in life, you should, you know, people, I, I, I coach a lot of our, our, our employees and some of my mentees to think about, which is, you know, always trying to be consistently adding value to people around you. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it reminds me of the book, how to win friends, how to win friends and influence people or, or the other way around how to, inf I think it's how to win friends and influence people from Dale Carnegie. And basically yeah. what, that book, you know, there's like clear examples on how when you're able to position your outreach or when you try to engage with people that it's all about how you could elevate their game, they are going to be more, um, I would say, inclined to, to establish a connection with you. So, um, so I, love, I love the fact that you're saying that because unfortunately, people are always very selfish when they reach out and, you know, it's, it's very easy to weed through the noise. So I hear you, and um, and I completely get that. So thank you for for sharing that, Tim. So I guess the um, you guys are a deal oriented company. What does this mean? I mean, at what point do you guys come to the decision that perhaps M and A is going to be the way to go? Yeah, I mean, so you know, in in our industry, um, there's a lot of really interesting players. You know, you've got Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters and Faxed, IHS, and these are mega, mega, mega companies, tens of thousands of employees, tens of billions of dollars market capitalization. Um, but the one thing that's changing about our industry is that machine learning and artificial intelligence is making it much more efficient uh, to run these operations, right? Suddenly you don't need thousands and thousands of people, you know, manually entering in data around private companies or, you know, uh, around legislation or whatever it is. You can just basically do that with a script. Um, and it's radically transforming the way in which we think about delivering information and data, uh, to other companies and other customers. Um, so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the world in which we live in today, um, uh, you know, where you have a lot of companies that have been unable to make this transition, uh, from, you know, traditional information business. Um, into uh, a more automated, more efficient organization. Uh, you combine that with the, just the, the tremendous influx of capital that exists out there in the world, um, from private equity to hedge fund, to family offices, to sovereigns, just so much capital out there that's sloshing around. Um, and then you combine that um, with sort of a willingness for people to do big deals or big ideas um, to transform 
you know, some of these businesses. And so um, we took a step back and we said, okay, guys, what is the most capital efficient use of, um, of our funds here today? Um, and, you know, what is the cheapest form of, of capital that we can access? And we felt like there was a good opportunity for us to identify a handful of businesses um, that we could buy on a pretty cheap basis, on a relatively cheap basis, you know, some multiple EBITDA, um, use some very smart financial engineering uh, with the capital that existed out there in the world, apply some smart leverage, you know, some seller financing, some rollover equity, wherever the case is, um, combine those businesses together, um, and then actually use our automation capabilities and technology to make those businesses much more efficient. Um, and so what you're left with is a series of companies that you own um, that you haven't taken a substantial amount of dilution to finance those acquisitions that are now operating at extremely high gross margins um, and on recurring revenues. Um, and, on, you know, this, going back to the metrics that you had talked about, right, you know, ARR, net retention growth, you know, if I could tell you, hey, you can get, um, you know, major ARR growth without issuing a lot of shares or issuing a lot of dilution. I mean, that's, that's you know, music to a lot of founders' ears. Um, as long as you're able to consistently find those targets that are out there in the world. So we've done uh, you know, a handful of acquisitions so far. We'll continue to do acquisitions on a regular basis, um, uh, you know, all with this thesis that, look, we can come in, we can buy a company, apply some smart financial engineering, transform those businesses, um, and then make them much more efficient, and then now have those businesses sort of sit on our balance sheet um, that we can grow together as part of our uh, broader par- product portfolio. Got it. Because how many acquisitions have you guys made to date? So we've done uh, about three acquisitions to date, um, ranging from, you know, call it a, you know, single digit, you know, couple million dollar revenue business all the way up to, you know, 45, 50 million dollars in recurring revenue. Um, and we've, we've consistently done that. And, and I think we're, we're on a continuous basis, you know, evaluating businesses to acquire within our organization. And what has been the biggest lesson? The biggest lesson about integration, because integration is a beast, and that makes most of the transactions fail. Yeah, I mean, planning goes. There's, we do a lot of planning for each and every acquisition. Doesn't matter how small it is. Um, and uh, for us, we have a very strong technology thesis that we need to, you know, implement, you know, very, very quickly and very early on. Um, I think, you know, diligence matters a lot, um, and. You know, we obviously spend a, a tremendous amount of time evaluating culture, evaluating management teams, evaluating technology platforms in order to make them um, integratable within our business. Um, a lot of people I know that in big companies, just do the deal, just do the deal. I mean, we we are heavily focused on making sure that these companies succeed. Um, and so um, I think that there's uh, you know, a very strong level of interest among our broader management team to make sure that we get these right. Um, I think from a broader perspective, though, you know, we, we would never do a deal that we, we felt like, you know, we were just doing to get it off our competitors' hands or um, all the different reasons that, that, you know, big companies do these acquisitions. We, we, we do these deals because we strongly believe that there's a transformation thesis that, that can be had. And that, of course, that um, our customers would find a lot of value from. Um, and so I think, uh, generally speaking, uh, we've been able to, you know, keep true to that. Um, and we'll obviously continue to do that moving forward. And how how, we, how how would you say that the business has changed? Because we were talking about it earlier that you guys started with this, you know, kind of like search for for the legal side or for the political aspects or environments and how the regulatory landscape could change and so forth. So I guess the um, what has the business model, you know, uh, come to be today? What does that business model look like? I mean, we're, we're still the same business that we started off in the beginning. Okay. Um, you know, we, you know, aggregate legislation, aggregate regulations. We do it from, you know, dozens of countries around the world today. Um, structure and normalize, classify that information using natural language processing, um, artificial intelligence. Uh, we build uh, workflow tools and analytics that sit on top of those laws and regulations. And we sell that to lawyers, um, compliance professionals. K Street lobbyists, um, politicians, and the like. We service roughly about, I'd say, about four thousand organizations today. Um, right. So, from a lot of different angles, you know, the complexity of the data, um, the complexity of the workflow, um, the, you know, the the different customer segments we'd have to go after and attack. Um, you know, we service everyone from every member of the House and the Senate in the United States Congress um, to you know major corporations, trade associations, and nonprofits. So, even just thinking through the complexity of of 
how do you service you know the Department of Defense differently from you know a major food and beverage company you know from you know uh, a trade association or political party I mean they're all so different in terms of their customer demands and needs and so um, that's that level of complexity has definitely definitely gone up um, you know we do also do have one part of our business which we acquired um, through uh, you know and a carve out that we did with the Economist Group of a company called Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call, um, where through our media properties, um, not only do our customers get, um, you know, data and information around sort of laws and regulations, but they also get the context, right? So they get the real life stories of, you know, how the Speaker of the House thinks, thinks about this or how the President is interacting with this regulatory agency. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, running a media business in addition to a data and software business, uh, uh, that just adds an additional layer of complexity to the organization, um, and so uh, it's very it's it's a really interesting business that that we're in, right? Which is you know selling information to organizations, um, but uh, you know I think what continues to drive us to this day is our mission and our values, and um, and you know what that's what drives a lot of our executives and our employees to get out of bed every morning. Of course. So how big is uh, fiscal note today, Tim? Uh, we are just under 500 people. Um, we're looking to probably double here over the course of the next 18 months or so. So I guess um, you know that's quite a that's quite a bit. So uh, in terms of scaling, the uh, top three challenges. <laughs> uh, definitely hard to, to place at the top three, but uh, I would say um, uh, you know staying true to your culture. Um, gets really, really tough, um, you know, especially as you start to scale. And um, not only, you know, in terms of reaffirming your culture, but operationalizing it every day in terms of your performance, your hiring, um, your management training and everything that sort of surrounds that. Um, and that's, you know, if I were to sort of say that that's, if that's the number one issue, it, it is the number one issue. I mean, and there's different iterations of it in terms of the executives that you hire and how you train your managers and the like, but generally speaking, it sort of revolves around people and culture. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, international expansion is tough, um, and you know we, uh, you know, have expanded um, somewhat successfully into the European market. You know, I've been spending a lot more time, my personal time, um, out on our, our offices in Seoul and our, our joint ventures in in Hong Kong and, and Jakarta. Um, we're looking at some stuff out in Southeast Asia, um, in particular, as well as Latin America. Um, but international expansion is is definitely tough. And you know, again, going back to the first thing, maintaining culture and processes um, and consistent management uh, amidst different work environments is is definitely challenging. Um, and obviously, you know, customer expectations start to shift wildly between different regions. Um, and so that's that's a lesson, to be honest. That we're still even learning today. Um, you know, as we grow our business. Um, and the last thing I would say is, you know, how you make decisions, um, in light of competing, uh, priorities. Um, and so it's easy, you know, to, for people to say, uh, uh, you know, we're going to make some X, Y, Z decision about, uh, this product or this customer segment, whatever the case is, but there's always a trade-off. Um, if you're building for customer segment X, you know, you're not building for customer segment Y. Um, if you're, uh, you know, scaling, um, you know, sales and marketing, um, you know, that's coming at the expense of maybe, you know, an extra hire in accounting, you know, to, uh, for, to account for cash collections or an extra recruiter somewhere where the case is. And so I don't care how much capital you have, you're always going to be resource constrained. Um, and making those hard decisions, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, the, the stakes get much, much higher, I think, as you start to scale the organization. And those strategic mistakes, I think, um, you know, we try and obviously, you know, our, our big subscribers to the sort of, uh, you know, make mistakes and learn from them. But, you know, sometimes blowing through five, $10 million is not, it's not fun. <laughs> um, and making a mistake. <laughs> sure. No, I hear you. Uh, and so I think, uh, we're still learning from a lot of these mistakes, these business mistakes that strategically speaking, we need to consistently readjust and, and move forward. And as an organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, I remember this book from Ray Dalio principles where he says that the lessons is everything you're going to be making mistakes but at the end of the day if you're not knocked out of the game you can get up and keep it moving 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, um, so cool. So I guess, uh, you know, looking back now, Tim, what would you say was perhaps a moment? Uh, because the the journey that we embark on as entrepreneurs is is not that easy. You know, it's not the glamorous stuff that people would read on the on the media outlets, and it's not a straight line. So, uh, Tim, I guess in your case, what perhaps looking back was a very very dark moment where you perhaps didn't know if there was going to be a tomorrow with fiscal note, and what what was the breakthrough that perhaps that breakdown led to? Yeah, you know, um, when you're, uh, you know, I started this company when I'm when I was 21 years old. Um, I'm I'm only 27 now, um, and so it's 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 very hard to have a strong level of conviction about what you're doing on a consistent basis um, because. You know, and I guess this is true even if you have a lot of experience, but um, you know, oftentimes you're leading with your gut and you're leading with your heart. Um, and uh, you know, I remember this one time where uh, you know we were you know doing our Series A round and we were kind of going down this pathway. We signed a term sheet with a fund, and something kind of felt off. And you know, we we ended up not we we ended up choosing not to sign the term sheet with the fund. Um, and, uh, you know, we, at that point, we, I think we had maybe like six or seven weeks of cash left in the bank, uh, maybe about 15, 15 or 16 employees. Um, and I pulled all of our employees into the kitchen and I said, guys, you know, uh, we made this decision, um, you know, we're not going to move forward with this fund, um, you know, but we're all, we're, we're all in this together. We're going to stick through it and we're going to get through it to the end. Um, and what really struck, surprised me at that point was each one of our employees, um, every single one of our employees at that point actually voluntarily gave up their salaries for about wow. two months. Um, and they said, you know, Tim, we believe in this company. We believe in this mission. Uh, we want to see this company succeed. Um, and that honestly just gave me the strength, um, to go back, uh, back out there, you know, from, from the, from the money that we basically borrowed from our employees, um, uh, to go out there and, and get a capital raise done and move the company forward. Um, and to this day, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful to our employees for giving us that chance. Uh, and, you know, I mean, imagine this experience. I mean, you're, I, I think I was 22 at the time and, and it was literally straight out of college. Um, and you see, you know, mid-career people coming up to you and saying, Tim, we believe in this company, we believe that you're going to succeed. Um, and then viscerally giving up their, their, their personal savings to make that, that, that possible. Um, and you know, to me, I, even to this day, I mean, you know, I, I lead our company with our employees, uh, at, at the core of it. I mean, I, like we, we cannot succeed if our employees are not happy and if they're not successful. And, um, you know, that, that stems all the way back from that early experience of, of watching a, an entire team come together to save a company. Um, and, and it's, it's something that I think about all the time now, as we, even as we, as we think about more mundane things like, um, like benefits changes from year to year or, uh, or whatever the case is. But, you know, uh, I, I, I supremely think a lot about, um, you know, career pathing, uh, compensation strategy, whatever it is. And, and we're not perfect. I don't think any company is perfect, but, um, it's something that I have committed to our employees that, that I'm going to try and get right, you know, every, every day that, that I'm the CEO. Wow. Well, that's, um, Definitely a powerful story, Tim. So, so knowing what you know now, right? Because you've been at it for for quite a bit, you've seen a lot. You know, there is a there is a question that I always ask the guests that are on the on the show, and that is knowing what you know now. You had the chance to speak to your younger self and be able to give yourself one piece of business advice. What would that be, and why? Before launching a business, I think that. I mean, not, not to be too cliche, but, um, you know, your team is everything. I mean, you know, the, the products that you, you create and the markets that you enter and the customers that you serve and, you know, every, all, all that matters a lot. Um, and there's different philosophies on how you run business. And I, I totally adhere to that. But for me, um, you know, I think that the CEO and the management serves at the pleasure of, of their employees. And I think you have to be accountable to your employees. Um, and, you know, the, we do this engagement survey that we do, you know, even to this day where I very transparently ask employees, um, you know, about the status of the company and what they believe and what's going right and what's going wrong. And to this day, my co-founders and I sit down twice a year 
um, after the survey, we read through every single response individually. Um, uh, you know, just trying to get a sense for what what's bothering people, what what more can we improve, um, uh, and trying to create that work environment that we want for for our employees. I mean, quite literally, up into our last holiday party, you know, my co-founders and I, we would literally handwrite thank you letters to our employees, you know, hundreds and hundreds of employees, um, you know, for for giving us the opportunity to work with them. And so. Um, that's something that I, I, I only learned through trial and error. Um, I think when you're a young founder, you know, in your, in your early twenties or whatever it is, you think that people are expendable and that you can always replace them and whatever. Um, but I think, um, as you, as you go further in your career, just realize that the team is everything and that the, the ability for an organization to execute revolves around the quality and the happiness of your team. And that's something that I probably spend the vast majority of my time thinking about to this day. I love it. I think that the people is everything. So uh, I definitely agree with that one. So for the folks that are listening, Tim, what is the best way for them to get in touch and, and say hi? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm very accessible. Uh, you know, feel free to shoot, shoot me an email, uh, Tim at Um, You know, you can also get in touch with us, you know, at, at our company, www.fiscalint.com. Um, also on Twitter, Instagram, everything else. So always happy to stay engaged and, and, and chat with anyone that, that wants to chat. Well, now they definitely know how to do cold emails. So watch out for your inbox, uh, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show, Tim. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.